All right, welcome back, inappropriate Earl listeners. Uh, you know, I try and get people I like on this podcast. You know, I've had pro wrestlers, Rowdy, Roddy Piper. I've had action stars, Kim Coates. Uh, I've Vernon Wells from Commando. Uh, you know, Chavo Guerrero, uh, part of the Guerrero legendary family uh, of wrestling. I've had five guests die on this podcast. Uh, so Brody Stevens, I mean, we, oh. we go for it but t- today. Yes. God rest the Brody. So he was supposed to do my podcast today. He killed himself. You think he could have waited a day. Uh, I have one of my favorite people on is someone I didn't start stand up with, but we did a lot of shows in the early years and I remember one day watching this show called Detroit 187, and I saw his name in the credits, and I thought, that can't be the same guy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome Mr. Mick Betancourt. Well, so great to see you, man, and thanks for the, I don't know why all of the perilous death needed to be stacked on top of this debacle, but I'll take it. Well, you know, uh, I've been doing comedy about 22 years. I started to think last night, how many comics have I know that have died? Uh, you know, just recently Bob Saget passed, and I, it's probably about 12 to 15, uh, you know, unfortunately. So uh, you're a survivor, but you're also a successful survivor. Like most people I started with or formulated my craft in the early years, they quit. You're like a a gigantic writer producer. I mean, like I said before, air. You're you are in the Dick Wolf umbrella, man. That's no, I'm I'm impressed. And and on the comedy side, as you know, I never stopped doing stand up. I'm performing January 30th. I would be in New York, but I never. <clears throat> so you, I, we're, we've been doing it about the same amount of time, about 22 years. And as you remember, like this is before the internet, before being a multi-hyphenate was viewed as a liability. So like if you said I acted and I wrote, people were like, oh, you're just writing because you want to be a star. And it's like, no, I actually like both. So the idea of doing both comedy and drama, at least when I started, that's why, you know, I would be at shows and nobody knew that that's what I was doing during the day. I just kept it to myself. Well, I was like, I'm such a fan of, you know, Law and Order and, and all those type of shows. And, and uh, I, I'm also part of the reason I wanted to have you on, frankly, is because I'm fascinated when a show, I don't want to say fails, but when a good show just for whatever reason doesn't happen. Like I was in I'm Dying Up Here and not to turn this into my life, but. Like, I'm still blown away that show did not do better because of, you know, you had Melissa Leo, an Oscar-winning actress, all these working actors, all the comics were pretty good actors, two seasons, and we barely got the second season. And you did Detroit 187, which I just love that show, and I'm being completely serious. It's like, like what happens when you're on a show that, like, the writing's great, the actors are great, and it just... It just doesn't happen. Well, I, th- I was told something kind of early on and let me just preface with, you know, we know each other. So I'll, I'll probably state a little more than I normally would if it was just 
just you and I kicking it to, so I had no, I'm what I guess you would call self-made. Like I would, I, I learned to write in the library. I didn't have enough money to go get an MFA or finish college or any of that stuff. So like I, I started stand up on my own. I started a room on my own because I couldn't navigate the politics of comedy clubs when comedy clubs were dead. And there's just limited spots to get in there because they needed to pay the bills. So they needed to book kind of reliable, neutral headliners to keep the doors open. And so I was like learning all of this business stuff on the fly while I was also trying to be creative. So I only say that like when I started, I knew nothing. Like I don't come from a long Hollywood pedigree. So in order for me to answer that question, I, I and process it myself being inside of those shows that are, are great, the, everybody from the set PAs to the stars are outstanding. And I was told every show gets canceled. Every show runs its course, some sooner than others, which is a tragedy. Like you look at Detroit 187, the lead in to Detroit 187 was dancing with the stars. So literally it was like someone dancing with the feathered boa smashed to holy fuck. Someone just got shot in the face. <laughs> so like it was we were like, couldn't grab the remote soon enough to, to be, to go from the joyful elated space that they were just in, in a dance competition to like seventh mile in Detroit. They were like, Come on, get <laughs> so I think that particular thing, kudos to ABC, you know, which NYPD blue was on. So, you know, they had been the home of, of kind of gritty uh, real television and then their brand kind of changed. And, you know, every year they always take kind of a big swing to maybe revisit some of that programming of their successful past. But I think Detroit 187 was a great example of like, and, you know, shout out to David Zabel and Jason Richmond who created that series. And I got a chance to go home to the Midwest, which is where I'm from. And, it was incredible, man. And everybody on that show was just so good. Yeah, no, I mean, like some shows I get, like, you know, I was just telling you, I watch, uh, I'm doing a deep dive and starting from episode one to episode 26, season five of Miami Vice. And, you know, I, I think around season four or five, you could tell that, okay, they're running out of Cuban drug lords and they went with some wacky storylines, like, a frozen alien and miniature cows. Uh, and, you know, I'm like, okay, they, this show's run its course. Or like, even a show like Sons of Anarchy, which you know you can only have so many Mexican gangbangers for the sons to go up against. So I guess shows like that. But I don't know. I just it's always weird to me, like with Detroit 187, or I'm dying up here, where uh, one or two seasons and that's it. Or like probably my favorite, Stephen Bosco. Uh, series now it's a little ridiculous uh, it was called blind justice and the premise of the show for those of you who didn't see it which i'm assuming is everyone was ron eldard who i love as an actor <laughs> he was a blind cop but he still got to carry his gun <laughs> i like but it was a great cast frank grillo and and uh all these character actors, the typical character actors that you go, oh, I know that guy or girl's face, but I don't know their name. And I think it lasted one season. Like, it's just bizarre to me, just as a TV viewer, to, to see a good show and not get a crack. Uh, it, do you just, do you have a train? So that show, you? by the way, I think I, I, I'm pretty sure this is correct, but Matt Olmstead, I believe, created Blind Justice. I think he did. And 
And so he was the showrunner for Chicago PD. I worked with him on Breakout Kings. He was the co-showrunner with Nick Santora. And so then he he was on, I think he started as a staff writer on NYPD Blue. And then he ran Chicago PD. He was one of the showrunners on Chicago Fire. Uh, and then I think he's running Law and Order Organized Crime right now. Yeah, I mean, just tell me, I mean, we could sit here for hours and name shows that, you know, like I watched Animal Kingdom. I loved it, but it probably ran its course. You know, there's only so many uh, robberies and heists you could, you know, spin into like a wacky family drama. But uh, since you're behind the scenes, like I know actors typically just move on. Like I'm sure Melissa Leo had three or four films lined up you know, sensing the end of I'm dying up here and Santino and all those guys probably had other things. I think Santino did Dave right after as a writer and producer. Do you have the same mindset to go, Hey, I got to line up my next gig. Well, you don't. So something odd has happened with the uh, dawn of streaming, premium streaming, whatever you want to call it. So Writers now are working eight to 10 episodes. And if you're not a um, creator on that show where your time is going to be a lot more before and after because you're responsible for the entirety of the series, you're most likely working on or trying to work on two series a year anyway, because the old model was you did a show like Law & Order SVU, which was on broadcast and it was 22 episodes to 24 episodes. So your whole year, 50 weeks was spoken for. But now you, you know, and you need to staff on other shows, but there's 572 shows going right now. So there's more, there's never been kind of more opportunity and never been less at the same time. It's a very odd time to staff and create. So I, um, some people just want to staff and write other people's stuff. I've always wanted to create my own and go out and pitch and set stuff up. So I've dedicated the last two years to transitioning to, to that of just solely creating things and trying to sell things uh, as the creator and executive producer showrunner. Now, how is it easier now since there's so many streaming platforms? I mean, obviously Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, uh, you know, and other, you know, out uh, comedy central, I guess, if you're doing comedy related stuff, is it easier to sell stuff? Cause these, all these networks need 24 seven programming. They do, but I think, because of the sheer volume, the um, the requirement to, and I'm going to use cheesy Hollywood slang of like move the needle or be loud in a busy marketplace, or has never been, you know, unless you're a Shonda or a Ryan and you're you've been a reliable, consistent, you know, source of both commercial and grounded. Like if you look at a show like Pose, real character driven in a very niche world, you know, you, you would have the license, the creative license to do that. The, the confidence that you can execute that. But I think for everybody else, it's very tough to go in with a nuance to take on something that isn't based on a franchise or built around some intellectual property that already has a built in audience. Right. And like you also worked on a show that I thought should have gotten a better run, Ironside, uh, which I, as a kid, Raymond Burr, like, like I love that show. Uh, 
Is it hard when you do a show like that? Like, you know, I, I talked about Miami Vice earlier. I, you know, I thought the movie sucked because it didn't. It just came off like a prequel to Bad Boys. It, it really wasn't faithful to the TV show. I'm not talking bad about Michael Mann. Like, he could do no wrong in my eyes. Uh, but when, when you work on a, a a show that was already big, like 20, 30 years ago, do you, is it hard to find a, a halfway point of paying homage to the original, but then updating it for millennial and Gen Z audiences? I think, you know, that's another example of like the creative team around that was great. Uh, Blair Underwood was just outstanding. Like, couldn't be more of a, of a, of a leader, you know, like on set, I'll tell you something. My mother-in-law came to visit and just came to visit the set. And at the time she was going through chemotherapy for like stage four, stage five cancer. No one really said anything, you know, they were about to do a scene and Blair saw her. Cause I just said, Hey, my mother-in-law is going to come on set. If it's cool with everybody, you know, and and I was a co-EP on that show. Like I wasn't just like set PA, you know what I mean? But I, I, that I, I we remain very collaborative and, and re- respectful. And, and uh, he said, sure. When he saw her, Earl, he said, come here. There are the cameras, everything brings her on the set, says hi to her and lets her clock the board to start the scene. Oh, wow. Like she was like walking on air for months after that, like just couldn't have been cooler and inclusive and supportive and collaborative. So like, and that was the, uh, Ken Sanzel was the showrunner for that hired some great writers. The actors on that show were great. I actually wrote, um, one of my favorite scenes ever on that show. And I don't even know if it made it to air. They may have set it up, but it was just like, basically Ironside killed a head of a motorcycle gang, like for real, like, and, but it was justified, but it wasn't, it was clearly outside of the law. And he has a real intense conversation that it, that, that just felt like I took a huge swing with that scene. I know it might sound corny, but I was really proud of that scene and it got, we got to shoot it on network. And it was really a cable level scene, not to say that my writing is that elevated and good, but normally standards and practices wouldn't let a scene like that go on network television. And um, so that was some of the risks that we took on, on that show. And it is tough. I mean, I'm, I'm a little all over with the answer. You know, you people have the expectations, the older audience that's familiar with the original Ironside. So they're going to come in with those and you're already fighting up against those. And then the younger audience maybe has heard of it, maybe hasn't. So you can run around in creative circles in your brain, or you process all of that information. And then you just move forward with what are the stories that we want to tell and what is the best way that we can tell them? Well, yeah. Cause that's like, you know, obviously my love for Miami vice is huge. And when I was watching the movie, I, I was like, Oh, well, uh, Switek and Zito aren't in this that much, but they were staples of the TV show. Now, I'm probably the only one watching that movie going, hey, why doesn't Switek get a few more lines? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you brought up something about writing for cable and network TV. You were on a show that I originally watched only because uh, Stephen Piercy, the singer from Rat, had a cameo as a door guy bouncer, uh, Wicked City, which... 
as soon as I watched this show, and I love the, the premise of the, the serial killer uh, roaming around the Sunset Strip, I thought this would have been a lot better on FX because they, they could have gone for it a little more. And, you know, like, that's to me why, like, say, Sons of Anarchy, uh, The Shield, uh, The Wire, they all worked better on, uh, I guess, cable, where you could, I guess, be a little more realistic. Is it harder to write for like a Disney-owned network like ABC versus, say, FX, where you can be a little more, um, I don't know if creative is the right word, but you can go for it a little more? Absolutely. And I think the the um, the notes process that's involved, too. So, you know, beyond writing something, you're collaborating with production company executives, studio executives, network executives, and everybody is passionate about the project, but also has a say in the matter. And so you have to kind of navigate that creative input as it, particularly on first year shows like Wicked City that kind of rock the boat back and forth. And I think with Wicked City too, they had shot the pilot and then like Grey's Anatomy reshot a lot of it as well, but keeping the uh, two leads. So, yeah. Well, because I only asked that question uh, because when I was on uh, I'm Dying Up Here, you know, I had very few lines. I mean, I, I think I was in 11 of the 20 episodes, had a line or two in each episode. And the main writer came up to me. He's like, dude, we love you so much and we want to give you more, you know, because we just love your demeanor or whatever. And we wrote a scene where you sleep with Ari uh and the network said no because they didn't want to see her pass around like that. And I was like, uh, but that's how 70s comics were. Uh, like, girls did get passed around. And he was like, and this was right at the the Me Too uh, stuff breaking with Weinstein and whatnot. So you have a lot of conversations like that where you write a scene, maybe it's a little violent or maybe the, the sex is too, uh, not graphic, but too much sex and they say, Hey, you just can't do that. Oh, sure. And I, and, um, it's a, it's a creative process by committee. I think that's one of the, with the, whoever the showrunner is ultimately along with the network, who's the boss having the the final say, or the, you know, the streamer Netflix, if it's, you know, or Amazon, you guys were on Amazon, right? Uh, that was on Showtime. Showtime. Showtime yeah. And we so had, but we had great lead. You talk about uh, your show, but Dancing with the Stars went into 187. I think our first year we had uh, that date with uh, Twin Peaks. And then uh, the second season we had Ray Donovan. I was like, oh my God, especially with Ray Donovan, because I love that show. That, that's a great lead in. And um, <laughs> I think we would have been better off with Dancing with the Stars. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just always wondered the creative process when a network comes to you and says, Hey, can you take out that scene? Do you then try and just fluff it up a little bit or do you just scrap it and go with something else? Most likely you're going to have to scrap it unless you have a history of success to point to is why that shouldn't happen. But you know, you can go back and forth throughout the creative process and collaboration and the notes process and, push back as much as you like, but he who he or she who holds the gold calls the tune. 
Right. I mean, do you ever get called in to write or produce on a, like, say, a cop show? Uh, and I, I can imagine that in 2022, uh, it's hard to come up with creative storylines for a police show, like they, or a doctor show. Like I see that new show, Good Sam. And when I saw commercials for that, I haven't seen it yet. And that's my girl from Chicago PD. So I'm rooting for it. But like, how do you come up with storylines for like a cop show, which are basically from uh, streets of San Francisco to Miami Vice to Detroit 187? They've all been, uh, there's only so many bad guy, good guy uh, interactions. You get. How, how do you try and be original? I guess is what I'm asking. It's the same. What, what do they say in standup, right? There's no original premises, right? There's just your own. It's the same. It's the same thing. You know, you have to, if you're creating it, you have to challenge yourself to have a fresh take on this and use, you know, the same thing that you would do for any creative endeavor. You have to combine discipline and craft and tenacity and, and consistency to push past kind of what is expected and what's been seen before. Pixar has a great, I think it's called like Pixar's eight rules of writing. And their thing is like, go like seven, seven paces past what the first instinct is because everybody's going to have that. So how do you, how do you offer that same, but different moment with the audience, which you're talking about? Like, Oh, we used to call it the um, gray box of death. Those interrogation scenes that you see on every procedural show, which is you did it. I didn't do it. You did it. I did it. So that's one way. Or you did it. I didn't do it. You did it. Frank did it. Or I did it. Or, you know, you did it. I didn't do it. You did it. I didn't. But I can tell you. So there's like four ways, basically, those things can go. Well, so how do you make it different and exciting? You know? Well, to me, like when we're talking about, like, say, police shows uh, or uh, good guy, bad guy shows, I think a show is always good. And I'm just saying this as a viewer uh, when the bad guy is good. Like, uh, you know, like I love watching John Glover, who's a character actor, but he's such a sleazy bad guy in everything he does. I think when the bad guys in any TV show get repetitive, you don't give the good guys enough to play off of. I mean, am I, does that factor into your writing? Like who the actual actors are? Like if you have say uh, Peter Weller as the bad guy, like he's great. Uh, or if it's another bad guy, do you tailor make the writing to who's acting? Well, the scripts come first and then those sides are, you know, you've, you've done the deal. You go in, you get the sides or sometimes you get the whole script. And then if there's something really cool about the bad guy, um, you know, you'll lean into that a little bit on the next pass of the script. Um, let me just complete the, the, the question that you asked, like, how do you make that different? Let me use a show that you have expressed that you like, which is Detroit 187. And Jason Richmond and David Zabel did a really cool thing with Michael Imperioli playing Detective Fitch, where he was interrogating somebody and the, and the person was just so confident and, and was just, gobbling up all of the other detectives in the interrogation and Fitch says, let me talk to him. <clears throat> and he sits there and he goes in the room and he doesn't say anything to the guy. And he just sits there and he stares at the guy. And then they're just time cuts 
of Fitch not saying anything. And then this actor improvised just kind of the nervous energy that would be there with this guy. Like, why are you saying anything, man? Oh, you think just by being quiet, you're going to fucking break me or I'm going to wind up talking or some crazy bullshit like that because you're on the other side of the table and you're not fucking saying anything. You're just going to look at me and all of a sudden that's going to have. And then you just kept time cutting that. And then the guy started like confessing about his mom and his childhood. And, and then at the end, he just gives it all up. But the detective never said anything. And that was just like a great, fun twist on a scene that we've seen a thousand times. And they took kind of like a, a big swing on, on how to turn that expectation on its head. Like, and I, and I love it when you guys brought in Tommy Flanagan, who uh, I just think is such a great bad guy. Uh, you know, just even from the facial scars, like to give him that kind of like that Michael Williams, you know, just gives it a, an authenticity factor about oh, this guy is a bad guy. Look at his face. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, he, uh, he came in and I thought was great, but, uh, you know, I always tell people Detroit 187 is one of my favorite <laughs> bigger shows along with this show on Fox that, uh, Rachel Nichols was in called the inside where I, I like the spin of it where she was an uh, FBI profiler, but she was obviously a female profiler, which was never done on TV before. You know, you have, uh, I think, Robert Davi as the profiler. Shout out to Robert Davi. Uh, <laughs> like I love Robert Davi. He's like my guilty point. Like, even in Showgirls, I don't know how he was roped into that movie, but like... Uh, you know, where he played Al, the strip club owner, but that's nothing to do with you. Let's get to you, Mick. Because how do you go from writing all these uh, dark television dramas and, and serious subjects, even like on a show like Chicago Fire, that's a serious show. It's not really built for humor. Usually you're dealing with a death or someone getting burned or stuff like that. How do you switch that button off and then go into your stand-up writing mode? I just love both. I mean, I, uh, when my son was born, you know, you and I were seeing each other probably every night, maybe two or three times a night as we were running all over town, trying to get as many sets in as possible, you know, as standups. And I remember seeing, um, Rodney Dangerfield's biography <laughs> and, you know, when his kids were born, he panicked because he grew up poor. I grew up very poor and uh, I didn't want history to repeat itself. And I was starting to find a little success as a comedian, like little premium blend set here, Montreal, like, you know, I could get spots around town. I did NBC's late Friday. It was starting, but the money wasn't there. So I needed to pivot and, and I'd always wanted to write. I had been writing prior and I really just made that my focus because that seemed to, offer a little bit more consistency than just kind of showing up hat in hand at these auditions or showcases, hoping that fate would kind of uh, favor me in the moment. But writing seemed to be something much, that I could control much more, you know, like, uh, and not need to be there in order for it to happen. Like I could email a script to anybody anywhere in the world. And it lived beyond me. I didn't need to be in the room. The performance didn't have to be lined up with the universe at that moment to click and be perfect. So, uh, but I never wanted to stop doing stand up. And as you know, and as I've watched in your own comedy, it probably took me 
15 years for me to really find who I was on stage, like to have the, to really roll the dice and just go, I'm more of a storyteller, funny, not like some, it wasn't a therapy session, but to really be more of like in the Berbiglia vein of stand up, certainly with a little more grit and edge than he has not taken, you know, not judging his set, but he's not, you know, my mother's a bank, a convicted bank robber. So those are the stories that I'm telling as opposed to his dad going to a restaurant and mispronouncing the soup that they're going to order. I wanted the stakes in mind to be a little different, you know? Oh, sure. Like, you know, I'm 53. So like, you know, I grew up, you know, my comedy references weren't really stand-ups, but were like Archie Bunker, you know, Carol O'Connor, and that, or in, in the Dean Martin roast. So I, I grew up in a pretty politically incorrect era. Like, you look back at some of those Dean Martin roasts, it's pretty cringeworthy what they were saying. Like, you know, especially poor Sammy Davis and Nipsey Russell were like just hammered with racial jokes. But, uh, and, you know, I think it's tough when you grow up with that has references to do stand up in 2022, where it's pretty uh, politically correct now to uh, does that affect your stand up or really your next TV show where you're like, Oh, it's a different era. We can't really, we can't joke about stuff like that. Or like, or do you go, Hey, this is the idea, whether it's a joke or a premise for a TV series. Uh, does, does this new era of, uh, the politically incorrect climate has it changed your writing style on either film or your standup? Well, I'll answer it both on the standup side and the um, writing side. So, on the standup side, all of my stories are personal. So, I I I don't think there's anything. There, the the truth is these things happen to me and in the life that I'm living. And so there's jokes about that, but I don't think that there's, you know, when, when Richard Pryor talks about his mom being a prostitute and being in the brothel and, you know, that's just the reality of what that was. There's really no kind of um, separation and then, you know, objective bird's eye view reflection on it. It's just like, this is the way that it was. So I hope that I lay that out with, um, a truth and an integrity and a comedy that isn't punching anywhere other than reflecting on the actual experience, if that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah. So, and, you know, I think in the evolution of anything, whether it's, you know, the human spirit or, or a business or whatever, I think always leaning towards the side of, being open-minded and having empathy and having compassion is always a good thing. Like I, I, I think that learning more and hearing more and is always a good thing. I don't, I don't see a downside to that from someone saying, Hey, this is what's going on with me. This is how I'm feeling. This is how I see things. You know, if the, if the, if the reaction is, that's not your truth. Like I, an alarm bell should go off of just saying, you know, you can just listen, having the capacity listening is an act of kindness. Right. And I say that to transition to the writing side of things like um, both with standup and writing should be done to the top of, of, of your, you know, your skill level and your integrity. 
And so like the reason why it took me so long to find my voice as a comedian is I wanted to be funny, which is great, but funny with the voices where excellence is and the real terror and fear that comes with merging a voice with just the capacity to be funny is what if your voice isn't funny? And then the, the, the promise of the dream is popped. That's where the real fear and terror is. Cause if I can dangle keys in front of the cat and just be funny for an hour on stage, that's great. But to me, the elevated version of that is intent and voice and, you know, really combining all of the things of the craft. So that transitions over to the dramatic writing style as well. Voice, elevated writing, really pushing yourself to deliver the best that you can. Because to me, when I look at you, I'm going to tell this story. I certainly don't mean to embarrass you, but uh, there was, uh, of course, hot comedy clubs come and go. You know, one club's hot for a couple of years, one, and then another one comes in. And, uh, you know, in LA, in Beverly Hills specifically, uh, the Friars Club, which was uh, not associated with the one in New York because the owner of the Beverly Hills Friars Club, the new owner, at the time, his name was Darren. He uh, he's got a different philosophy on, uh, you know, when I think Friars Club, I think Don Rickles, Foster Brooks, yeah. uh, you know, Dean Martin, you know, Sammy Davis, uh, Joey Bishop, you know, the, the older, uh, you know, basically the cast of any Cannonball Run movie. And uh, the Beverly Hills Friars Club in the mid-90s was more uh, a little liberal with uh, hookers working the reception desk and uh, the waitresses. And uh, there was, was the mid-90s? Time. No, that was mid-2000s, right? Uh, oh, you're right. Uh, but what, about 2003, 2004, I think. Uh, yeah, she just fucked it up by a decade. <laughs> Dude, my mind's a blank. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm usually not up this early. Uh <laughs> Uh, so I, I wasn't even doing comedy in the mid 90s uh, some say i probably wasn't doing it in the mid 2000s either but uh there was a show we were on it was uh myself uh you jim norton and uh, i believe i was the feature or the uh opening act which was very appropriate i, I was pretty bad at that time to be honest and then uh you being more established went on second and then jim norton third and jim was just blowing up around that time and it, i only tell this story because i see all the shows you've written on very serious shows shots fired wicked city chicago pd working with jason Bahey, who like i can he just strikes me as a very serious guy uh and then so i do my set i bring you up and uh i'm talking with jim norton in the back we're looking at the sandwiches where every comic is touched i don't know what the health rating of those sandwiches were but it was not above a d and all of a sudden i hear the crowd going wild and jim's like what's going on i'm like let me check for you I'm like, let me get in with this big headliner so i poke my head out the curtain and you're you're not naked but you're you're stripped down to nothing but a red pair of briefs. And the Speedo. crowd. Yeah, <laughs> Speedo. I didn't know what to call them. But, and the crowd's loving it. And I go back to Jim and going, hey, yeah, um, I think he's doing like this Andy Kaufman thing. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, 
he's killing, but he's in nothing but a red pair of Speedos. And Jim just started having a panic attack because, you know, we've all been there when uh, the comic before us is either, you know, they're doing something weird and, and it's going to be hard, I, I, either a guitar act or, you know, uh, like a roast battle, I took off all my clothes and, and was oiled up like a wrestler and no one could follow it. And Jim was going, I can't follow this shit. What is this, a clown show? I'm like, well, you're going to have to, dude, because he's about to get off stage. And I just find it visually, I'll never forget that. And then when I saw your name on the TV credit, I'm like, that can't be the same guy. Do you still go in the red Speedos is my question. So the the, the way that bit worked is, I uh, doing the regular set, doing the regular set. And then I start throwing a couple jokes that are just, I know they're not going to get in the lab. So I'm bringing them down to a place of neutrality. And then I'm bringing them down to a, we like this guy, but we're not sure if we like him anymore place. And then I just go, I have a question for everyone right now. And then I would take all of my clothes off and stand there in the red speedo for like 30 seconds of silence in the speedos. And then I would just go, who here is fucking serious about swimming? (laughs) And then you do it. And I go, and I'm not talking about in water where the cool kids do it. I'm just talking about right here, right now. And of course, the total absurdity of that, when they realized the last four minutes were just a lure to get him into that place, is probably, you know, what you heard. What you left out of that story is Norton went on, had a good set, and maybe to this day, been doing stand-up for 22 years, I've never been in a nicer green room than the Friars Club had. No club ever put out a spread like they did shrimp. Like, you know, when you grew up poor, if you get shrimp, either someone died or someone just beat a court case. Like, <laughs> like when do you get to eat shrimp? I couldn't believe it. And there was just as much as you wanted. I couldn't get my head around that. So Norton goes on. He does great. He comes back. And you were standing like you were on this sofa that was in there. And Norton was like kind of pacing back and forth, kind of happy that, you know, it went well and that he was just neurotic going beforehand. And I pulled my pants down and mooned you and pulled the cheeks apart while Norton was ebbing back and forth between having a meltdown and enjoying everything. And you pointed like you got your face like this close and you go, Hey Jim, look, it's a chocolate rose. <laughs> and then he left. He just left. <laughs> I don't think I've seen him since. I think he moved to New York. I don't think he's been in Los Angeles. Yeah, that was like, if you're a New York guy and you're like, all right, so in this weird place, it's not the Friars Club. It kind of is. I'm where the real Friars Club's from. Like I go and these guys, he's in his Speedos. Then the guy pulled his ass cheeks apart. And the other guy was smiling, calling it a chocolate rose. I just went right to the airport. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's and of course, people uh, listening are probably not getting the, the nuances of just how weird a club this was in that time frame. It was the most beautiful crowds I've ever played in front of. Oh, yeah. Well, you would have, like, the L.A. Kings would show up, and it would be the whole fucking hockey team, like, in the front row. Did you hear the story of what happened, of how how that all blew up? No. So I don't – I'm 
let's say I'm 90% sure this is true. So I'll leave 10% out for legal purposes because this is just, you know, LA comedy urban legend. So the Friars Club in New York obviously got wind that there was this incredibly successful club in LA that was selling out and had memberships that was calling itself the Friars Club and had no relation. So they reached out and said, look, we'd like to fly out to LA and, uh, you know, talk to you about this. So they flew out and they met up with the people that ran the LA Friars Club. They all went to a beautiful dinner and said, you know, what can we do here? Can we collaborate? Can we do everything? And the LA guys like convinced the New York people to allow them to coexist. It was going to be fair. And then the bill came and they go, all right, so we'll split it. Right. <laughs> and then you guys are like, what? And they go, well, we'll chat. You guys had the steak and the thing. And we had the, you know, I had the salmon and the New York guy goes, sure. Yeah, we'll split it. So they split the check and the New York guys went right to the airport got the first flight back to New York, called the lawyers and were like, shut their shit down. And it was like closed, like within the next week. Well, I just think looking back, it was such a, uh, he, they ran it like a nightclub almost not. Oh, for sure. I don't think they really paid respects to the, you know, the Milton Burrow era. And, and granted that's 30 years previous. So I, I get that they probably didn't uh, appreciate the history of the club. Like, the New York Friars Club, I think, still pays homage to, you know, what got them to today. And uh, I just remember every, you know, there were so many uh, small rooms in that place. Uh, you know, like they had like a cigar room, a card room where you'd walk in and. You'd, oh, it was unbelievable. You'd see some. Remember Ari David? Ari David is one of the great uh, L.A. comedy legends uh, who would, when he was bombing, which was quite often. Uh, and I love Ari. We're still friends to this day. He went a little like wacky with the politics. So I had to kind of distance myself, uh, but for legal reasons, he would, when he was bombing, he would just take his testicles out and got, he would, he would get the crowd back every time. And if you, you know, you, you've heard the legend and I know you're like a legit producer, writer, director. So I'm trying to clean this up a bit. I don't want to cost you work, but you know, we've all seen Ari Shafir's uh, gonads. Uh, they are like two basketballs and hubba bubba gum. Uh, Ari, uh, David's are twice the size. It's really how he walks in jeans is a miracle for me. But that's the craziness of comedy we deal with is Ari David, this maniac rich kid, ran the hottest room in the country for, uh, I would say, about eight months. Uh, and then it got a little wacky and, you know, uh, like Sebastian was playing there and. Oh, everybody did, man. It was, it, it was Dublin's and then it became the, the next huge room. I, you know, the cool kid room was Fargo. And what was the death ray room on Tuesdays at that little place by like fountain and vine. Oh, uh, three of clubs. Yeah. So it was like three of clubs. It, it was, it was Dublin's three of clubs. If you were, uh, you know, the, the, in the cool kids, hipster, you know, kind of room. And then, but, you know, Dublin's was Dane Cook, Alonzo Bowden, uh, a lot of you comedy store guys. And then Ari pulled it out on the Beverly Hillside and he put in Laugh Factory guy. It didn't matter where you were from. He didn't, he didn't say like, oh, you're a three of clubs guy. Like he put everybody on that show and that's what made that show great. Well, I think Ari was just happy to have people talk to him. He was a little bit, uh, um, 
I would say, had a, some kind of social disorder uh, where he had he would get that D'Onofrio stare in his face when a good-looking girl would come in the room. I'm like, all right, this is... Stephen Glickman paid, played the piano? Yeah, no, it was a wild... Uh, you know, Brody Stevens would come in and, and uh, you know, Brian Keith Etheridge, who was, was one of my favorite, favorite comics, uh, who I believe is now a successful writer. Um, I guess, piggybacking off of this, do you have in your world now of you know NBC, Fox, all the shows you write on or have written on? Are there Ari Davids of that world, like wacky uh, showrunners or or you know producers that, that you have to deal with? Or are they pretty normal at that level? I think um, you're going to deal with the full spectrum of the human experience in. Um, any business, but I think where there is any creativity, music, comedy, I would say not only creativity, but money, where you may, where, where you and I can go take the series seven uh, stockbroker license. I don't think, I think you just need to be 18. You don't need a college degree. You could just take it. And if you pass it, it's like the real estate license. You can start trading stocks. So if you just go and you you kill it and you're making money as a stockbroker, you start your own hedge fund and you're just you're, you have insane personality quirks or, or 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 a personality that lives outside of what people would consider the normal box of personalities. No one's going to give a shit because the money's coming in. Now, of course, there's a line that's crossed that where there's a reckoning with you know, uh, an extreme kind of um, perverse, manipulative line that is now being dealt with where maybe some people would look the other way because there was a lot of money coming in. And I think that line is now moving up to where more, you know, normalcy, normalcy and morality and respect and integrity is becoming the line that, that has a parity with commerce. Well, as opposed to no line because just money is coming in. Well, it's funny you put it like that because on I'm Dying Up Here, uh, you know, the ratings weren't great uh, either season. And I think I think I could say this without getting into trouble. Uh, Melissa Leo was uh, she's eccentric, <laughs> I guess. Uh, she was um, she might say temperamental at times on set. And I just got the feeling of if the ratings were better, they would have had another season hey you know we're all making money we'll deal with it but since they weren't i got the feeling that from the higher ups and no one said this i just you know i'm not the smartest guy in the world but i'm a people reader uh i mean i still cry at the end of porkies but uh when peewee finally gets laid but you know i got the feeling that uh when she had a particular blow up on set one day and it was probably the most uncomfortable I've ever been, even though I had nothing to do with the blow up that they were like, Hey, fuck it. Let's pull the plug on this show. Like we, we're not getting the benefits aren't worth this right here. Uh, so I, I find that, uh, you know, people will, like you say, deal with craziness. I'm not saying Melissa's crazy, but like they'll deal with the attitude and ego and, the eccentricity, uh, even in R. David's case, where I'm sure the fire club was like, this guy's crazy, but this place Thursday night is packed. Yep. Um, so now when you did, and I know we only have a few minutes, 
I know you got to, uh, your book to do uh, out of the box with Rosie Tran. So I want to, uh, no, I'm just kidding. That, that's probably my favorite credit that you have. Uh, Rosie Tran, shout out to Rosie Tran, legendary comic. Uh, I have a really funny story about her off air. I'll tell you. Uh, well, I, I guess I could say it just real fast. Uh, she thought uh, BJ Bales was BJ Novak from the office. I'll just leave it at that. Um, now you, when you were on TV as a standup, that era you were in was probably the last era that you could get on TV, you could do Montreal, a premium blend, and actually get stuff. Like now, since, and it's probably one of the only downfalls of there being so many networks, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Comedy Central, even Logo has uh, comedy in some form. Uh, you get you get on. It's like, uh, what's the big deal? There's seven comic spots on TV tomorrow night. But did you get what you wanted to when you got on TV and in, in, in that era? No, I mean for me, just as getting the to do stand up on TV was a bucket list. So like to just you know scratch that off was outstanding. <clears throat> I think what was known and was a game that I struggled to play was the casting side of that, you know, show business, two thirds of that is business. So like having um, either a character or a point of view that had a show baked into it in that five to seven minute stand up set. So my stuff was just funny, kind of like what we talked about earlier. And I remember um, the head of casting at Fox came to a set at the improv one night and it was the Thursday night where Drew Carey show was the first show. Everyone was at the bar. It was just like magical. And that was the spot in LA for comedy that, you know, that day during the week. And so I did the set <clears throat> and for whatever reason, I got a standing ovation. The set just went great. So I'm walking off the stage through the crowd towards the back door in the improv and the executive was right by the door. And it kind of stood up to meet me. So I met them and now I'm paused by the door and I'm smiling and I'm waving to the crowd and they're looking at me because they followed me walk towards the back door by the back of the room. So I was just kind of nervous and coming off that high of just performing. And I go to the exec, I go, so what did you think? And he goes, I don't know what to do with that. And then just left. And I'll never forget. He left through that door that moved like this. Right. And I watched him walk down the hallway and then I just turned to the audience and they're all on their feet cheering. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like, and it was a casting thing like that. Me being funny on stage doesn't translate to the success of him casting me in one of the shows on Fox or building a show around me. Cause I know this now, cause there was nothing in that set that had characters and story that would, that in an executive's brain would go, oh, I see the story, I see the characters, I understand how this would go week to week, let's meet Tuesday so we could talk about it some more. I just entertained, I did stand up for those people, but stand up with other stuff in it, like you look at Sebastian's act, uh, you know, uh, Joe Coy's act and Joseph's gonna come out, I believe they're shooting the pilot for ABC, you know, all of that is a world and characters and it's different than just say the observational style of a Seinfeld, which needed Larry David's help to go, this is a show about nothing. And then would have to pitch those four characters that lived outside of his act and show how the character, you know, on stage would exist in that world. Now, I, I know we only have a few minutes, but since you've done both 
comedy and behind the camera. Uh, why do you think uh, most stand-ups can't act? Wait, are you asking me if I think that? No, no. I mean, I'm saying that's, I think, the general consensus. Like, you look at, uh, you know, I'll say his name and, you know, I, I don't, I got no beef with the guy, but like most of Dane Cook's movies were kind of panned for his acting. Um, you know, uh, that's why I love Dice Clay. You know, I grew up uh, before Dice Clay blew up. I'll go back to Michael Mann. My first exposure to Dice was on Crime Story. Uh, and I remember seeing Dice Clay at the Wiltern, not going, oh, that's Dice Clay, but oh, that's Max Goldman from Crime Story. Like he was, I know it's crazy to say that. Uh, and I've told him that many times and and he's got very fond memories of Crime Story. Uh, but like, do you think it's, a, I guess my question to you, I'll phrase it better. Do you think it's a fair perception that most standups can't act? I think yes and no, and I'm not being ambiguous. I think there's um, something that standups could bring to acting that, you know, they're two different crafts. They're two different skill sets. But if you bring what you can do in standup, which is being interesting very quickly on stage, because you have to, get the audience's trust, respect in an instant, and you build up that kind of presence, you don't need to bury that when you pivot to acting. Right. And you just need to marry those skills to, you know, however you train for the craft of acting or, you know, so I think that I learned the most about acting by being behind the scenes to see what is required in film and television. And I booked more roles as an actor once I started writing and producing because I really understood, because I went through everything. I sat in casting. I've sat in casting for probably 150 episodes of television. I can, for every, from everything from a, he went that way to, you know, an eight episode guest star. I know exactly what to do, where to stand, what works, what doesn't through each stage of that process. And then I just didn't want to be a knucklehead. I wanted to absorb that from my own creative process to have that inform my own acting. Now, do you, I know I said one last question, but I'm, I'm, uh, I probably, no, I do. I mean, dude, it's been years since I've seen you, but I know you got other <laughs> stuff. To do. You, man. <laughs> uh, well, I'm always fascinated by casting. That's my favorite part of any show is, is you know, like Chicago PD. I just love Jason Behe because that, of course, I know him from uh, the great HBO show, First and Ten, where he played the quarterback, Tom Unessa. And I remember seeing him once. I know, I'm going deep, dude. I only, no, because that, that, speaking about acting and double murders, O.J. Simpson was in First and Ten. Uh, but I remember seeing Jason Behe once on the beach with his family. And I thought, oh, my God, that's Tom Unessa. And I had a football for whatever reason. I think it was in my family. So I threw him the football without even really asking him if it was all right. I'm like, hey, Unessa, throw me a deep ball. And he threw me the most wobbly pass I've ever seen. It looked like a wiffle ball. And I'm like, you're not really a quarterback, are you? He's like, buddy, I'm an actor. And then he basically gave me a look like beat it. I'm with my family, you moron. Um, do you? Are you in... Uh, you know, when you're writing, you know, say with, with Detroit 187 uh, or Chicago PD, do you ever say to the casting director before you start work, hey, do you have any idea who's going to be the bad guy? Uh, is it going to be a John Glover or a, a Peter Weller or Kurtwood Smith or 
do they do you wait for ideas to percolate in your head after casting last question no you you tell casting you have the casting call and they'll ask you very you know you you as the writer uh will send the character description for casting along with any comps of other actors that how you see this and then for me i always ask them to bring in somebody um maybe not in that tone or vein so that um I can see something unexpected that, that might bring something a little different to the part that I didn't even think of when I was creating it. Like when I watch, uh, and I know you had nothing to do with this show, but like Sons of Anarchy, you know, the original pilot was shot with Scott Glenn, who has Clay Morrow, uh, the, I guess the leader of the, the fictional motorcycle gang. And I look at that and go, that works. Like I could see Scott Glenn being a, a old cantankerous hell's angels and for whatever reason uh kurt sutter didn't like him brings in like you said someone who probably didn't fit the mode of a leader of a hell's angels gang and ron perlman and it totally worked like and, and charlie hunnam if you were to sales if you and i are writing sons of anarchy and someone says hey the new leader of the sons is going to be charlie hunnam i'm like uh, i'm sorry i don't see too many uh Hell's Angels leader who are male models wearing Chuck Taylors, but yet it worked. Like, uh, so out of the box, you do ask for at least one or two out of the box selections uh, to maybe go with an idea that wouldn't work for an inbox selection. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Mick, I could talk to you all day about <laughs> so good to see it. some of my favorite shows. I'd like to talk to you off air about getting the full season of Mob Doctor because I'm a William Forsythe guy. But that's another uh, I don't want to impinge on people's podcast lesson. Uh, where can people find you? I'm sure you don't want my fan base messaging you. But do you uh, have a Twitter and Instagram people can go to? Or are you on the DL? So I suggest they go and check out the Mick and Jason show podcast, which is available on all mediums. Uh, even though we talked a little bit about drama, it is just that the, the hook is, and this is really going to sound crazy, but we wanted a comedy to be funny. And so that's, our goal. So it's a one hour podcast of just real silliness and real comedy. You know, it's just us taking a swing. If it's your thing, great. If it's not great, but we just wanted, there is no hook. We just for an hour, try to be funny and offer people certainly a well-needed break during these last two years, which have just been suffocating. So I hope people go check it out. The Mick and Jason show podcast available on all mediums. I want my fans to become Mick Betancourt fans. Uh, and he's just one of the good people in this business. And there's not a lot of them in comedy. And I'm not so sure about the other side because I'm rarely on that side. Uh, you know, my acting methods were honed from the Lorenzo Lama school of one line reading. Uh, but uh, Mick, thank you very much for doing this. I hope to see you in your red speedo sooner than later. And uh, if you ever need a scene with a one line said to perfection they call me one take jake i'll see you man. it's good catching up with you man be i'll good. see you later probably won't be on a film set uh but hey 
I'll see you in your red Speedos. I'll meet you at the Friars Club in 20 minutes. <laughs>